0: Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Tuesday, November 6, 2018. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, Facebook takes down more accounts ahead of the election. The new Chrome might block all ads on some websites. The MacBook Air reviews are in, and why you might not be able to read election results in tomorrow's newspaper. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. As much as I enjoy how, to a certain extent, this podcast is largely able to avoid politics on a day-to-day basis. It's almost a respite from that constant mishigas sometimes. There are days, like today, when it's unavoidable, especially as tech has increasingly found itself so enmeshed in politics in recent years, much to the Valley's consternation, I think, Election Day is today in the U.S. Of course, everyone is watching to see if there is some sort of social media misinformation campaign that pops up like it did two years ago. Late last night, Facebook announced that it had blocked 115 accounts, 85 of them on Instagram and 30 on Facebook that were engaged in, quote, coordinated, inauthentic behavior ahead of the U.S. midterm elections. What's interesting is that Facebook didn't discover these accounts quoting from their blog post. On Sunday evening, U.S. law enforcement contacted us about online activity that they recently discovered and which they believe may be linked to foreign entities. Our very early stage investigation has so far identified around 30 Facebook accounts and 85 Instagram accounts that may be engaged in coordinated and authentic behavior. We immediately blocked these accounts and are now investigating them in more detail. Almost all the Facebook pages associated with these accounts appear to be in the French or Russian languages, while the Instagram accounts seem to have mostly been in English. Some were focused on celebrities, others political debate, end quote. Given that, I would also point you to a lengthy blog post that just came up on Medium, link in the show notes, of course, from Jonathan Albright, a journalism professor and researcher. He did an extensive study around the upcoming election on social media, scrutinizing 250,000 posts and 5,000 political ads. He focused mostly on Facebook. His key takeaway, quote, it's not good. Many of the dangers that were pointed out years ago have seemed to grow exponentially on Facebook, not unlike the other large social media platforms, end quote. By the way, Albright says that the rise of extreme content on Instagram is, quote, possibly the worst he's ever seen. But Albright was, again, focused mostly on Facebook and specifically around this upcoming election. And he says that basically nothing has gotten better on Facebook and things have probably gotten worse, even with issues that tech platforms have known about for two years now, even for things that there have been actual congressional hearings about. Things like verified pages of publishers and funding groups being managed by accounts based outside the US. Quote, Facebook does not appear to have a rigid protocol in place to regularly monitor pages running political campaigns after the initial verification takes place, end quote. Second, Albright says Facebook's groups product is especially susceptible to manipulation, what he calls shadow organizing. And third, Albright focused on granular enforcement of accounts. Actions like what Facebook did last night by removing these so-called coordinated inauthentic accounts. Albright argues that reactive takedowns like this are almost counterproductive because the activity has been gaming the system for sometimes years before the takedown happens. So, he argues, the damage has been done. Albright says that, quote, common sense approaches to platform integrity and manipulation still appear to be less of a priority for Facebook than automated detection and... Emphasis by me here. Removal publicity, end quote. In other words, Albright is alleging that Facebook isn't interested in taking garbage down as soon as it's detected if it can't make headlines for doing so. When in reality, it could be taking this stuff down all the time, quietly and regularly. Speaking of proactively blocking garbage, if you're up to date on your Chrome web browser, then you're on Chrome version 70, but Chrome version 71 arrives next month and it will block all ads on sites that have persistently shown abusing ads, such as fake system messages and the like. Chrome 68, which arrived in July, introduced measures to prevent ads on sites from opening new tabs or windows if they were reported for offering abusive experiences. But now... If websites get reported for such activity and they don't remove the abusive ads after a 30-day grace period, Chrome will block all ads on those websites, thereby bringing the hammer fully down on those websites' ability to generate revenue. Quoting from The Verge, Although users will have the option of turning this filtering off, the majority are likely to leave their settings at their default values, effectively withholding a huge portion of a flagged site's revenue. It's a big incentive for sites to prevent this bad behavior, even if it's an uncomfortable reminder of how much power Google now holds over the internet, end quote. Yes, blocking crappy ads is good, but Google is the sole arbiter of what is a crappy ad and what isn't. And let me guess, all ads run by Google are ipso facto good ads, right? And is there any right of appeal or arbitration if you run afoul of Google's opinion in this matter? Again, again, Blocking crap ads is good for consumers, but is there any more obvious candidate for looking at Google in an anti-competitive light than the Internet's biggest advertiser also running the Internet's favorite web browser and that web browser wielding the power to block ads from competitors that it just doesn't like? Follow-up to that Amazon HQ2 story, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that Amazon is now likely to split its planned second headquarters into two, splitting the new facility into roughly two equal locations of about 25,000 employees each. The journal says that the final decision has not been made, but the names of the final candidates that keep popping up are, again, Crystal City in Northern Virginia and New York City, specifically Long Island City in the borough of Queens. Why the decision to bifurcate all of a sudden? Quoting the journal, By building two headquarters, Amazon can tap different geographic regions for talent, including some who may not want to move too far from home. It may also not be competing with other major tech giants in a given area, like it does with Microsoft in the Seattle area. The company will continue hiring experts in machine learning, AI, and supply chain, all areas Amazon currently hires for in Seattle. Additionally, the decision would allow it to lessen the potential headache for chosen areas. Amazon has wanted to avoid being the only large company in town, something it has dealt with in Seattle, according to people familiar with the company's thinking. Adding 50,000 workers, even over more than a decade, would likely cause some hiccups for transit systems and potentially lead to issues like a lack of affordable housing, end quote. Well, I can tell you that Long Island City is booming, There's a lot of tall buildings going up right now. Also a lot of apartment buildings. And it is a short skip and a jump into Manhattan. But believe me, the 7 train is already crowded enough. And don't get started on the G train because it's not going to be able to help much since it's doing double duty when the L train shuts down. Hopefully this is being taken into account. Instead of tax breaks to lure Amazon, maybe we can get Amazon to pony up to help our transit network. That's always been the wrap on this whole headquarters sweepstakes thing that critics have complained about basically from day one. It's like when a sports franchise holds cities hostage in order to get them to finance a new stadium for free, it feels a tad extortionist. And now that two cities seem to be in line for the prize, a lot of people feel like this is double-dipping at least, or exploitative perhaps. As freelance journalist Dan O'Sullivan tweeted, so Amazon lied throughout the entire H2 search process, making cities ante up in expectation of a far, far bigger deal than they were actually getting, end quote. And Will Shepherdson tweeted, real headline, Amazon plans to open two new offices, end quote, as opposed to a second full-fledged headquarters, which was what was always promised, to which The New York Times' Mike Isaac responded, quote, this guy is right. HQ2 was basically an enormous PR stunt to get the best tax breaks possible from local governments all clamoring over one another. Only thing keeping me from thinking techos won't do this again and again is because the exercise made Amazon look terrible, end quote. Reviews of the new MacBook Air came in this morning. Quick summary is, everyone is thankful to finally have a Retina display on a MacBook Air. The new trackpad is great. Getting Touch ID without the stupid touch bar is more than welcome. But the processor bump is super modest at best. As Owen Williams tweeted, the choice of an Intel Y-Class processor in the 2018 MacBook Air is genuinely baffling. You spend thousands of dollars to get a new laptop and basically get the same performance as three years ago, but with a better screen, end quote. But if you've got an old MacBook Air, I mean, I had one, I'd have killed for that retina screen. Or as Dieter Bone says, quote, if you're still hanging on to an old Air for dear life, you'll be happy with this upgrade, end quote. His headline in his review in The Verge reads, The present of computing, as opposed to the future of computing. And the sub-headline reads, completely whelming, as opposed to, of course, completely overwhelming. And also, as we've been talking about for a week now, maybe the real story here is that the new Air makes the MacBook line look questionable. As TechCrunch's Brian Heater says in his review, quote, with all of its upgrades and lower price point to boot, the Air is the clear pick over the 12-inch MacBook in practically every way. As a matter of fact, barring some major future upgrade, the 12-inch likely isn't long for this world. And that's perfectly fine. The new Air is very clearly the better buy, end quote. And I haven't been able to quote from John Gruber's reviews of the recent products until now because he tends to post in a more leisurely fashion than everyone else who hits publish just as soon as the embargo drops. So let me rectify that by ending this segment with the concluding paragraph of his review in Daring Fireball, quote... A lot of people are looking at the lineup as it stands today thinking they must be missing something because it seems obvious that most people looking for a MacBook in this price range should buy the new MacBook Air. They're not missing anything. The new Air is exactly that, the MacBook most people should buy and exactly the MacBook everyone has been asking Apple to make, end quote. Let's wind down today with some startup news. Two interesting raises and one interesting acquisition. First up, Bangalore-based Misho is a social commerce startup that operates primarily in India. It has raised a $50 million Series C round from investors including Sequoia India and Y Combinator. Misho was a 2016 Y Combinator graduate. Quoting TechCrunch, Misho has adjusted its focus considerably since it graduated YC And today, it operates as an enabler for people in India wanting to sell products using social media. Primarily, the focus is WhatsApp, the world's most popular messaging app, which counts India as its largest market with over 200 million monthly users. The company provides sellers with products, which it sources from suppliers, and inventory management and other basic seller tools. In turn, sellers hawk their catalog to friends and family as they please. Misho handles all the payment and logistics providing a cut of the transaction to sellers. Interestingly, there's no fixed price for products. That means that sellers can vary the price and even haggle with their customers just as they do in real life, end quote. Next, we know that Uber has surge pricing to use market demand to handle, well, surges in demand. If a sporting event lets out, say, or it's St. Patrick's Day, prices go up in certain places in order to incentivize drivers to swarm into those places and meet the demand. But what if you can't predict reliably when the surges in demand are coming if they're not based around things like holidays that you know are coming? Well, Predict HQ uses big data to predict spikes in local demand for companies like Uber and it's raised a $10 million Series A and is relocating the company from New Zealand to San Francisco in order to focus on the U.S. market. Quoting VentureBeat, Predict HQ essentially aggregates data sets from myriad sources related to events covering public holidays, observances, concerts, festivals, and more. The company then throws in other hard-to-find data that it manually curates itself, as well as its own proprietary data, and bundles all of this into a single API, which it licenses to companies including Uber, Domino's, and Booking.com. End quote. And third, VMware has announced that it has acquired Heptio, a startup that provides professional services for enterprises that use containerized Kubernetes-based architectures. The interesting bit is that Heptio was founded by Joe Beta and Craig McLucky, who were two of the three people who started Kubernetes in 2014 when they were at Google. Kubernetes, of course, has subsequently been open-sourced. Quoting TechCrunch, given the pedigree of Heptio's founders, this is a signal of the big bet that VMware is taking on Kubernetes and the belief that it will become an increasing cornerstone in how enterprises run their businesses. The larger company already works with... 500,000-plus customers globally, and 75,000 partners. It's not clear how many customers Heptio worked with, but they include large tech-forward businesses like Yahoo Japan, end quote. This news is, of course, also a sign that, remember, there can be money to be made, if not in open-source development itself, then around open-source projects, in the support and maintenance of those projects, in the handholding of corporations looking to deploy those projects. Remember, just last month, IBM bought Red Hat in one of the biggest tech acquisitions of all time. That's all for today. As always, I've been your host, Brian McCullough. I wrote and produced the show today. You can follow me on Twitter at BrianMcC And of course, you can buy my book wherever they're sold. It's called How the Internet Happened. I get my story ideas every day from the Tech Meme editors. You can follow their work at techmeme.com, of course. And if you follow them on Twitter, at TechMeme, you can get all the news when it breaks in real time. And follow our occasional writer and good friend Chris Higgins at Chris Higgins. Talk to you tomorrow.